good morning, guys. It's good to see you. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 9. That's where we're going to be today. We're just going to look at those four verses of 1 Peter chapter 5, picking up in, um, or actually going to pick up in verse 8 and 9 and go backwards uh, from 5, 6, and 7. While you uh, join us, if you want sermon notes, we do have some at the resource tent, or you can download the Alpine Bible Church app and click on the word notes, and uh, you'll see sermon notes there as well related to today's message. I do want to say, as a church family, I know some of us, if if you're aware, um, just some of the things that have happened among our family, we do things together as a family in the cause of Christ, and we've been praying for the Ordonius family, so it's good to see you guys today all together here in SAC. Appreciate what the Lord's done in your life, and thank God that you're here today together. It's good to see your faces. as we think about today's message, when, when we go into 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, I want to give us just sort of a crude outline to this section of scripture we've been in together, this letter that Peter's written. We've talked about this uh, pretty regularly, that this, this letter is written in the midst of, of persecution, and, and Peter wants the church not only just to survive persecution, uh, but to really come out stronger because of it. Jesus has this way in the midst of trials to refine us in our faith and following after him. And so just because you're going through difficult things doesn't mean you need to put the pause button to wait on all those things to pass uh, before you start living for Jesus again. In fact, uh, during those hard times is, is, I would say, most especially where we might find ourselves closer to Christ than in any other, uh, connected to God because of those adversities. We seek God's face in hardship really more than any other time in our lives. And I'm not saying that that's the way it should be. It just happens to be as, as people, that's the way that we find ourselves, that we become more aware of our needs when we face uh, difficult circumstances in life. And Peter's right writing this letter to a persecuted church in what we would call modern day Turkey and living for the Lord. And when you look at this book, chapter one starts out the identity of God and and, in light of the identity of God, chapter two and three uh, tells us how we should see ourselves because of who God is. God is the one that gives us purpose, worth, meaning, and value in life. And he tells us in chapter two, he gives us a beautiful identity that you are a royal priesthood in the Lord, that all of us have this connection that we're created for uh, in God. And we find our purpose, value, and meaning in that relationship through him. And we live in light of purpose uh, of who God is, or at least we should. What's interesting for us as human beings is we're created as worship beings. We'll find our identity in something. And if it's not in God, whatever we find our identity in, it will leave us empty and searching for more. You may find joy in something momentarily, but over time that that joy will die. And, and what we find in that is that we're really ultimately created to find our purpose, value, meaning in God. And so in chapter two to three, he does that for us. Beautiful the way he describes it. Because when you get to chapter three, he starts talking to particular individuals, the end of chapter two, into chapter three. He talks to particular individuals that we might look at in, in first century society and say, these are oppressed people. But, but in that oppression, he, he shows where they can find their identity and voice in the Lord, that they can still be a light, that your position in life doesn't determine uh, your usefulness in Christ. Uh, it's, it's all about influence. Leadership is about influence. Making a difference is about influence. And all of us have a place in life to influence others. And therefore, all of us have a place to make a difference. It doesn't matter your position. God has called all of us to be a light for him. And then when you get to chapter four and five, he talks about this this perseverance in adversity. Now that we find out who God is, we find our identity in him, the opportunity to be a light for him. Then he talks about perseverance in adversity. And that's where we get to at the end of chapter five, the last 
last section of this letter that Peter wrote. Now, I want to say this to us. Let me encourage you this way. When you read these epistles in the New Testament, it's important to remember these are letters, right? So we've been going through this just a few verses at a time, chunking this out to understand it, diving deeper in the section of Scripture. But what's healthy for us to do is when we pick up the epistles is to read them like they're a letter, to start from the beginning to the end and see it as one continuous thought. And today we're going to look at this particular section in, in chapter 5, and it's sort of this dinner, dinner conversation section that we often have together, right? I mean, it says, uh, the devil wants to devour you. How often, how often do you have that kind of conversation? Let's talk about something positive with all the things going on. The devil wants to devour you. That's what Peter says here. The devil wants to devour you. That's, that's a pretty sobering thought to think about. Now, I want us to know that, that this isn't something that should strike, strike fear into our hearts because you live for a greater power and authority in the Lord. Okay, and he has the devil has no more dominion over you than what uh, God permits him, and, and God has already conquered sin, Satan, and death. Jesus has already been victorious over it all, and you belong to Him. And so, while it's important to just consider the thought that the devil wants to devour, it's also important for us to consider where we are in in Jesus in light of this, and how to to live in light of that in the world. The devil wants to devour you, right? In First Peter chapter five, uh, verses eight and nine, I want to pick up there just to see the significance of of this section of scripture to make some points about that that phrase. The devil wants to devour you. Before we we talk about the, the particular ways he wants to do that and how to find ourselves strengthened in the Lord rather than focused on, on the devil. In verse 8, he says this, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, no doubt, you look at a section like this, it's, it's definitely clear what Peter's saying here. The devil wants to devour you. Talking to a first century church, he wants them to persevere in the adversity. And, and he's just giving this recognition. And, and there's a few ways I, I want to respond to this for just a moment. We think about this passage. One, one is um, some people approach a text like this and... Um, they do so in an unhealthy sense, right? And we want to talk about the healthy sense, but let me just say this about the unhealthy sense. Um, some people approach a text like this and they obsess about the devil, right? It's the kind of people that just sort of play skittish over everything. They look for the devil in anything. Uh, they, 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 they think the objective of life is about identifying the devil and then freaking out about the devil and putting up all your defenses against the devil and trying to spend your life hiding from the devil, right? But that's not what God calls us to. God doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound mind. So the whole point of life isn't just to simply walk in fear of the devil. That's not what Peter's bringing this up for. Peter's not saying, okay, and there's a devil, guys. Everyone be afraid. Look, he's roaming like a lion. He's going to devour you, right? So everyone live in fear. That's not what Peter's after here. So in one sense, you can obsess about the devil. That's, that's not what we want to do. In, in the other sense, some people just like to pretend like there is no spiritual life. Like when you look in, ter- in uh, terms of the devil in scripture, there's some pretty intimidating terms used for the devil. The prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, the accuser, uh, the deceiver, the, the dragon, the serpent, the lion. Those are some pretty intimidating words. And so some people, I think, in maybe even in response to those that just get overly obsessive about uh, people that focus on the devil, that just want to cast the demons out in in every scenario that they're in. Uh, There's the other extreme that just simply says, look, I'm just going to pretend like it doesn't exist, or I'm just going to say it doesn't exist, act like it doesn't exist. And and I, I want 
I, I want us to approach this text with neither of those attitudes, right? Because I don't think that's the attitude that Peter wants us to carry here. Rather, what I think Peter wants us to do is to be biblical and to live in the reality of what he's saying about the devil, right? Meaning there is God's kingdom and then there is what opposes God's kingdom and, and, and Satan is seen as the leader of this. So how do we approach this biblically? Well, let me just say this. Uh, when we think about the devil, here's what we often picture in our mind is we like to have this idea of, you know, the devil's going to show up and he's going to say, kill, steal, and destroy. And here are my horns and look at my pitchfork and be afraid, right? And I, when you look at this text of scripture, that's certainly what the devil is trying to portray and what Peter's saying here. He says, the devil roars around like a lion, right? He isn't a lion. He wants to appear like a lion, but we know the lion. The lion is of the tribe of Judah. He's Jesus. But the devil wants to puff his chest. He wants to roar like a lion. He wants to intimidate you that way. But this lion can be put on a leash. And, and, but, but when we think about this lion, like I, I love the imagery of this because oftentimes when we think about the, the devil and we think, okay, the devil's got pitchforks and horns and I just need to avoid that. Well, the idea of a lion sort of paints a different idea of his tactics. I mean, of course, if you see a lion coming, you're going to get out of the way right? You're not going to stand in its path. But what makes a lion so effective isn't that he just announces, hey, I'm, I'm coming to eat you. What makes a lion so effective is that he's subtle in his approach towards his prey. And to be honest, that's the same way the Bible paints the picture about Satan. In fact, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, it says, he appears as an angel of light. Meaning what he wants you to think about him this is no big deal. Satan's not that bad, right? And just sort of turn down the spiritual temperature of seeking after the Lord with your life. Just half-heartedly do that, right? Satan's tactics aren't in your face. Satan's tactics are much more subtle than that. He's wiser than that. He moves around like a lion. You don't know where he's coming from. Now, you can hear that and become fearful of that and may think your objective is to just look out for Satan everywhere you go. Or you can just pretend like he's not there. Or you can approach it the way that Peter describes here in 1 Peter chapter 5 because there is a way this lion can be put on a leash. Because the truth is, he's not a real lion. He just pretends to be like a lion. The real lion you belong to. And Peter wants to encourage us in this way in understanding how to live in light of who Christ is, knowing that Satan lives contrary to that kingdom. And so the question for us is, how does the devil want to devour us? And, and in verse 9, Peter's already given a hint to this. He says, but resist him. And how do you resist him? It's not by simply sitting here and saying, I resist you, lion. But he gives the next phrase. He says, firm in your faith. There is a, a path to pursue that's in line with Satan. And there's a path to pursue that's in line with Jesus. And when we walk in light of who Christ is, we live in a way that avoids the devouring of the devil. And not only that, is a beautiful, successful light in light of who Christ is in, our, in this world around us. It makes a difference. 
And this is what Peter's after. And so how does the devil want to devour you? Well, look in verse five and six with me. Remember last week, we, we talked about the idea of leadership and, and the need for godly leadership and godly leadership uh, leads a flock. It doesn't stand behind and drive a flock. It's this godly example. It walks with this certain level of humility. Well, in this verse, now Peter turns around and looks at, to, into the congregation and he, and he says this in verse five, you younger men, likewise, just like he said to the leadership previous to this, be submissive to your elders and all of you clothe, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. So he's very much saying in, in terms of this elder we talked about last week is this position of, of pastor or even bishop or overseer. It's all the same word in the New Testament for leadership. A pastor in, in New Testament terms is an elder, is a bishop, is an overseer. It's all the same word used in the New Testament. But in this verse, now Peter is more talking about the elders being the older generation. The reason it uses the term elders for leadership in the church is because elders tend to be of the older generation. There's wisdom that comes with age. And he's telling the young people, young people run a lot of times with energy and think that they always know what they're talking about. Not all of you. I know they're not our church. We got some wonderful young people here, right? But, but he's just saying to that young man that sort of just leaps out into things. Now, there's a proper place of respect for God's people. And he talks to the older people um, and he talks to the younger generations and he's saying, let's in all of this walk with humility. And here's what he's getting at because Satan really wants to rip you apart. I mean, God's primary objective, or I'm not, excuse me, not the Lord, Satan, I should say primary objective. If he can get the church disunified, create division. I mean, he, he really takes away the effectiveness of our efforts in a community, a life for Jesus. And so Peter's approaching this and saying, look, when things get difficult in your life and you tend to face adversity, I mean, even like days like today when you're out in the heat for any prolonged period of time, maybe, maybe you might just get a little crabby. And maybe that irritation just rubs off with other people. Same thing, same thing's true when you go through just adversity in life. This, this, maybe you can't quite put your finger on it, but there's this low-lying irritation that just continues on. And after a while, that irritation kind of comes to the surface and it really, it really affects the relationships around you. And this is what Peter's recognizing for the church when they go through hardship. Like 2020 has been a very polarizing year. There are a lot of topics that we could choose to, to, to plant our flags over and create division in the body of Christ. But can I say for us as a congregation, one of the beautiful things that I think we've experienced over this year is I think we've continued to walk in unity. There are things this year, and you can have opinions on different things that happen, but not to the point that we allow it to create division over the greater cause for which we exist in Jesus. God calls us not to a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And so when we read this verse, what it's saying to you, the devil, he wants to devour you through pride. That's the blank in the notes. Look in verse six. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at proper time. See, God opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And what he's saying is this, pride is the enemy of intimacy. But humility builds the bridge for relationship. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
the primary reason God created you is to know him and delight in him for all of eternity. God created you for relationship. That's why Jesus said the greatest commands are to love God, love others. It's not about what you're doing. It's about who you're becoming in him. It's about that relationship. God made you for a relationship. And when you're connected to God in a healthy way, the beauty of that relationship is made known in your relationship with others because when you live in light of who God is, you love what God loves and what God loves is people because God gave his life that we may know him. So he says, God, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So his prescription to the way Satan wants to work. Satan wants to devour you through pride. God's prescription is to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And he acknowledges us in verse nine, this is an act of faith, right? Resist the devil and stand in the faith, stand strong in the faith. To humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is to acknowledge that it's no longer me in control, but it's him in control. It's not about me making much of me. Pride is, is, is antithetical to grace. Pride is all about self. Pride is about self-autonomy from God and others. It's about using other people just to simply leverage your glory. And that could even be God. And and so what he's acknowledging for us is is this idea of humility, which is letting go of self to, to see the glory of God made known in your life. And so a lack of humility for us becomes the tool that Satan uses not only to harm our lives, but to harm God's people. So let me just give you three reasons real quick why humility is important. I've, I've, I've alluded to all of these. One is it frees you in your walk with God. Humility frees you in your walk with God because it's finally, it's finally a, a place where you lay yourself down to draw near to him, to call him king, to recognize that you're not Lord, he's Lord. Um, in the book of Genesis, something, something interesting happens in Genesis. It's very subtle. When you read Genesis, first three chapters, chapter one, it goes through all of creation, right? And you guys are probably familiar with it. God created in, this, in six days and on the seventh day he rests. And when it describes that to us, it says, and God created and, and there was morning and, and evening and the first day and morning and evening the second day. And it goes on and on. In chapter two, starting in verse four, something interesting happens. Because in chapter 2, verse 4, this is where it gets a little bit more specific in the creation of humanity. And and it's when it tells us that God forms us from from the earth and he breathes into us the breath of life. But but what's interesting in this chapter is when it refers to God, it no no longer just says God. In chapter 2, verse 4, when it starts to talk about the intimacy of creating humankind in his image, what it says is, it says the Lord God, the Lord God formed you from the dust of the earth and breathed into your nostrils the breath of life. So no longer does it just refer to God as God. It now talks about him in Lord, as Lord God. And, and what's important about that is it's, it's beginning to, uh, to acknowledge that he's not just this idea of distant God who created everything, but now he's personal God who, who's connected us in relationship in him being made in his image. So, so now he is Lord of our lives that we, we acknowledge it's not about us, but it's about his glory in this world. And we walk in humility before our king, then, then we live in light of that in this world. We find our purpose, not, not in ourselves, but we find our purpose in him. And so it's about acknowledging Lord God. But here's, here's what happens again. When you get to chapter three, who enters into the Garden of Eden? Satan, right? 
Chapter three starts off with Satan entering into the Garden of Eden. And you know what Satan does? Verse one, it, it, it begins to open up with Satan speaking to us. And Satan says, has God really said that? And without even really recognizing, all of a sudden this phrase, Lord God, it, you, it loses the, the word Lord. And then it goes back to just referring to God as God. Impersonal again. And Eve buys into it. And Eve, when she starts to refer to God, no longer uses that word Lord. She just simply says, yeah, God. The point is this, that in this garden, what Satan is using as a, as a subtle tactic, he's not coming in saying, look, Eve, I'm here to kill, steal, and destroy. All he's attempting to do is begin to pervert the truth and bring God down to Eve's level. Has God really said, Eve? Don't you know better than God? Do you think God's really looking out for you or is God, God hiding his best from you? And Eve begins to believe the lie. And in losing that humility before the Lord, what happens? Still kill and destroy. See, Satan doesn't have to come into our lives and, and teach us these horrendous things. All Satan has to do is begin to pervert the truth and we'll take care of the rest. And so what Peter is saying is, look, when adversity rises up against you, this is the time that we often want to take the reins from God, not trust in him and trust in our flesh. And, and then rather than carry humility towards one another and assuming the best for each other and looking out for each other, we start living life for ourselves. And when we do that, we become an island to ourselves and it becomes about our self-autonomy and we begin to push people away. And it begins in our relationship with God and we no longer see him as Lord God, but rather he's just simply God, something distant from us. But Peter is saying the way that you put this fake lion on the leash is to keep the real lion on the throne. Because in your life, you will make a God of something. You're created as a worship being. You will look for your value and worth and meaning in something. And why not make it the one who cares for you? So he says to us, it frees us in our walk with God. And in addition to this, it frees you really from the comparison game. Because when you don't make God God, where do you go to find your worth and value? Where do you go to find your meaning? I'll tell you where we tend to go as people. We look at everyone else around us, right? And we can do this with anything. They have nicer things. I deserve nicer things. Their kids are this way. My kids need to be this way. Their marriage looks like this. My marriage needs to look like this. But guys, can I tell you, God doesn't call your marriage to look like other people's marriage. God doesn't call your kids to look like other people's kids. God calls you to be who he wants you to be, not who other people tell you to be, right? Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a father of a handful of kids and something I've learned over the years. Every kid's different. And no matter how much people want to pretend to be an expert on raising kids, no one's an expert on raising kids. If, if you believe that, just have another kid, right? As soon as you think you get one figured out, you get another one. And I think the Lord does that to keep, keep you humble. Um, no one's an expert. And, and when you start comparing your family to other families, 
God doesn't call you to be them because God didn't, God didn't make your children like the children you might compare your children to. Or God didn't make your spouse like the spouse you might compare your spouse to. Or God didn't make you like the other people you may compare yourself to. You know what God wants you to do? <laughs> to be who he called you to be. You know what God wants for your kids? To be who he's called them to be the way that he's gifted them to be in this world. Same thing with your spouse. And the question for us isn't, how can I be like other people in comparison? The question is, what does Jesus want for my family? What does Jesus want for me? Pride will have me playing the comparison game and completely lose sight of Jesus. What God calls us to is to walk humbly with him wherever we are as a family. I know sometimes we expect that in our lives we need to put our pressure on ourselves to, uh, to get to a certain place at a, a certain time. But let me just give you this little thought for a minute that uh, your, your direction determines your destination. Your direction determines your destination. What I mean is this, look, Sometimes when we grow in our relationship with God, sometimes things move quickly and sometimes they move a little slower. But what's important in all of those things is who sits on the throne of your life. Because as long as Jesus is on that throne, you're going to continue to move forward. If we would walk humbly before him. And so walking in humility, it frees us in our walk with God it, it frees us from, from the comparison game. And, and then third, it, it blesses relationships. It blesses relationships. Um, when, when you think about the way Scripture talks about Satan, li- just listen to these verses for a minute. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. And what he's recognizing in our life, look, when, when, when we're in control of everything, we tend to get angry when we can't control the way we want because we're supposed to be in charge and life is about us. And if everyone would do just what I want them to do, then everything would go well, right? That's how we tend to see it. Uh, James says it in James chapter four. He asked the question, do you know what causes the destruction around you? And we're supposed to be able to answer that and say, yes, everyone that doesn't do what I want them to do. And he says, no, it's the anger inside of you because you think you're in control. It's our pride that wells up, that destroys. And he's saying the same thing in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. Do not, do not give place to the devil. That anger will hurt. Or, or in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, when he talks about leadership, it says, don't appoint a new convert into leadership so that he will not become conceited or prideful and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must be well thought of by outsiders. And what he's saying is like, if you point someone to a leadership position too soon, what's going to happen is they're going to think that it's because there's something great, not because of what the Lord's doing in their lives. And they're going to become conceited and give the foothold to the devil because they're going to make life about them. It's not about us, right? It's, it's about his goodness. And so here's what happens when, when we walk in humility. It blesses, it blesses relationship. Uh, Emerson Agaric wrote the book, Love and Respect, and, and really the book culminates in, in one major idea. He, he, he's talking about this, this book, Love and Respect, is about marriage. And in Ephesians, uh, the end of chapter 4 of Ephesians, 
uh, it, or chapter 5, it talks about marital relationships. And it says to the husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And it says to the wife, wife, respect your husband. And, and Emerson in his book says this. He, he talks about what, he, what is the crazy cycle in the book. And he says, you know, when a, when a wife doesn't have love, then she won't respect her husband. And when a husband doesn't have respect, he won't love his wife. Or at least in, in our flesh, that's how we tend to respond, right? And so what happens in that, when, when a wife is not loved, she doesn't react, react in respect. And when a husband isn't respected, he doesn't react in love. And this crazy cycle begins. It goes on and on and on. And they just tear each other apart because they're not getting what they want from the other person. And that crazy cycle will not stop until one person does one thing. Humbles themselves. They humble themselves and they stop putting themselves first. And they look after the interest of the other. And in fact, in those moments where they're facing that tension without love and, or respect, a husband may come to the wife and say, look, honey, what you said felt disrespectful. Is there something I did to you that made you feel unloved? Humbles himself. And when we walk in that kind of humility, it blesses relationship. It starts with our relationship with God, in which we find the health of our relationship in the Lord and not in the comparison game. And then in the end, it blesses relationship with others. You know, one of the things I, I, I love in Scripture is you come to a verse like this, and, and you read this, this kind of statement, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture, right? And then if you say to yourself, okay, I want to find an example in the Bible for me to follow in order to live this out. Who can I look to? And you know, when you look in the Bible for examples, uh, what you find is there, there's a lot of bad examples. Like, who can be your example in this? Like, you think, okay, we're going to walk humble and have the perfect family, perfect marriage, perfect kids. Who can I look at in Scripture? I mean, where do you start? When you go to Adam and Eve, you look at Adam and Eve, and, and what, what happens to Adam and Eve? Well, the very first problem they have in the Garden of Eden, what do they do? They immediately blame each other. And then right after that, their kids kill each other. Or, or you look at, at, at David or, or Moses or Abraham. I mean, just example after example of just bad, bad, bad things happening where God says walk in humility, but even God's leaders, the ones that we herald in Scripture, don't even have the, the best examples for us to follow. And this is what it says to me. We need to be gracious to each other in this. Right? Because we're not perfect. And no one in the Bible is. And there's a little bit of comfort to that. So we see a verse like this that encourages our lives, but when we look at to different individuals that have lived previous to us, us, we can find skeletons in the closet very easily. And so I'm not, I'm not approaching a text like this like I'm some sort of expert trying to tell everyone else what to do because I do it better than anyone. I'm not doing that at all. I'm coming to a text like this realizing that uh, throughout the centuries there have been individuals that have recognized verses like this, but their lives haven't always been in line with it. And so for us to live this out, we, just, we need to do this uh, not only humbly in submission to God, but continue to be humbly and gracious, humble and gracious towards one another because none of us are perfect. But this is what puts the fake line on the leash so that we can live in light of the real line. And number two, so the two ways the devil wants to devour us. Number one, the, devel the devil devours you through pride. God's prescription, humble yourselves under his mighty hand. And number two, the devil wants to devour you through anxiety. Look in verse seven. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
Cast your anxiety into him because he cares for you. The devil wants to devour you through anxiety. Now, I know some of us may be too proud to admit and say, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a person that gets anxiety. But I, I think, truthfully, anxiety pops up in different ways. There's not just one way to describe anxiety. Um, anxiety comes in, in different ways. You can have stress, preoccupation, burden, uh, d- depression, obsession. I mean, uh, anxiety can present itself in different ways. So it's not just, just to fixate on, on just the idea of whatever you think anxiety is. But, but we can start to receive anxiety in, in different ways in our lives. And, and I think it's important to say, look, there's nothing wrong with seeking professional help in anxiety. I'm not here to put that down. What I, what I do want to acknowledge as we look at this passage is there is a spiritual component to anxiety. And it's important to recognize how it fits in light of what God is saying in this passage. So I'm not a professional care, counselor. I'm, I'm not a therapist. I, I just want to look at this passage in light of what, what Peter is saying and how it impacts our, our relationship with God. And so what, what Peter is saying for us, he gives us a lens into the particular type of anxiety. And I think one of the, one of the ways we could look at it here is in some ways, it's the opposite of pride, and in, in other ways, it's, it's directly connected to this word. And let me, let me tell you what I mean. The word anxiety here means unraveling. Okay, so, so when you think of a proud person, a proud person just sees themselves as this self-autonomous, got it all together, don't need help from anybody, look at me, I'm God kind of individual. That's, that's, where, that's really the driving force behind pride. It's all about them. Anxiety comes in that place where you start to lose grip, everything becomes unraveled, and maybe you're at a place of pride, but now because you've, you've been humbled in your position, you don't know what to trust in because all you trusted in before was yourself. And now you don't know what to do. And so in that type of attitude, you, you start to get anxious. But, but here's where I say, okay, sort of the antithesis of pride in this sense, but, but, but I also want to acknowledge that in some ways it's a lot like pride, and, and here's why. When you look at this passage of Scripture, Verse seven, it says, casting all your anxiety on him, right? Casting all your anxiety on him. The previous verse is humble yourselves. And here's what's important in this text. Peter is actually tying these two verses together. In fact, he's in tying this whole thing together. These aren't just separate thoughts. He wants us to all see how Satan uses these phrases uh, to devour us. And verse seven, this word casting actually modifies uh, the, the, the phrase humble yourself. So what he's saying is this anxiety is not disconnected from pride. In fact, the reason that we find ourselves in this anxiety that Peter's referring to is because of our pride. It's because we've trusted in self and now we've lost what to trust in because now all, everything's becoming unraveled. Let me give it to us this way. Sometimes I'll hear people say this as a pastor. You know, I, I just don't love myself enough. If I just love myself more, Everything would be okay. I don't love myself enough. And sometimes, sometimes I don't like to be this blunt over things, but at some point, sometimes you have to call a spade a spade. And and there are times in life where people say, you know, I just don't love myself enough, where honestly the answer is, the problem is that you don't love yourself enough. The problem is that you love yourself too much. And you think the answer is within you. But as a human being, you were never created to find the purpose of life within you because you weren't created for you. God made you for his purpose. And it's not until you lose your life that you're going to find it. That's what Jesus said. 
It's not until you surrender your life that you're actually going to live for the very reason in which you were created to live. And so Peter wants us to recognize that there are times where we think that we're all in control and then all of a sudden we lose that control and then we go reeling. And our spirit gets anxious and here's his answer. Cast all your cares on him. Cast all your cares on him. Now when we hear that kind of phrase, his prescription for us, we might think, well, that seems so simplistic. Does God really not care for me that he's going to come to me in the midst of my trouble and all he's going to say to me is cast all my cares on him? Well, the reason he says that isn't simply because he just wants to, to, to treat your, your situation, your problem as if it's some kind of circumstance he doesn't care for. In fact, the very next phrase, I think, is the place that we need to center our anxiety because he says, cast your cares on him. And look at this, because he cares for you. That's where your soul finds rest. I can't help but think today in our own lives how much easier, how much better life would be with us if we look back at some of the decisions we made, if we just believed that phrase, he cares for you. I mean, he cares for you more than you care for yourself. That's how much he cares for you. He loves you more than anyone has ever loved you. That's how much he loves you. Cast your cares on him. Why? Why? I mean, he's big God and I'm just here. I don't want to bother God with my problems, right? As if Peter says to us in a very gentle spirit, and this is why when you think about, when you talk about terms of anxiety, guys, I think this is what's important. When you look at a person who is proud, you certainly need humbled. But when you're looking at a person who's suffering and anxiety, look, we're not coming to beat people over the head. In those circumstances, we need lifted up. It may be that we've sought the answer within ourselves. That may be true. But in the brokenness of our moment, what we need is to be loved and cared for. Community, we're, we're created to connect. We're created to belong. And that's exactly what Peter's saying in those moments. You belong to him. He cares for you. So when we think in terms of the way Satan wants to devour us, two ways that he gets our eyes off of the true line. Two ways. One is pride, and the other is anxiety. God's solution, really in both of those circumstances, has to do with humility. Surrendering ourselves to him. Why? Because he cares for you. God is for you. God wants his best for you. Now, it may not be what your picture is, but it says this, he will exalt you in due time. And that's what's important to recognize is that it's not you exalting yourself. We don't humble ourselves so that we can exalt ourselves with the things that we want to tell God to give us. But rather, it's him that exalts us in the way that he has created us. And this is what, what Peter says in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. 
And that's what firm in the faith is. Like we're, we're putting this lion on a leash that is Satan in order to live to the true lion by walking in what the faith is all about, which is humbleness before our king that we can find ourselves exalted in him, resisting Satan and letting go of the things that we are concerned about because he cares for you. Now, I want us to know as we close here that this passage is not saying to us that you will completely get rid of anxiety. That's not, that's not what I'm arguing for today. If you just do this, you just take this solution, and all of a sudden your, your anxiety is going to be gone forever. That's not what Peter's arguing here. In fact, this is a verse that we need to learn to live in every day, that, that at any moment you can take back the throne from God. And any moment there come, comes a circumstance that you might get anxious about. And Peter's not, uh, not arguing for us that all of it will be gone away with. In fact, in, in the book of Psalms, in, in chapter 56 and verse 8, it says this of God. You have kept count of my tossings, but my tears are in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And what David's acknowledging is in those sleepless nights when he's tossing, God still counts them. He knows. He's aware of that. And and all of the hardship that we go through and the tears that we shed, God stores it up in a bottle. God's going to reconcile it all. God will exalt you one day in in, in a way, whether it's in eternity or, or, or here on earth, you will be exalted in Christ. But it doesn't mean all anxiety goes away. It doesn't mean the struggle goes away. But it does mean for us that we need to walk in light of the true lion. You know, as I, I thought about this, one of the stories in Scripture that was, I think, something that I could relate to as an example is the story of Moses. You guys remember the story of Moses in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Exodus? Moses is picked as this, um, seen as this deliverer for Israel. And here's what Moses thought in chapter 2. Moses really thought he was the Savior without God. And, and, and Moses, what does he do? He, he aligns himself with his people, though he grows up in Pharaoh's household. He wants to relate to the Jewish people. And one day he goes out and he sees uh, this Egyptian being difficult on his people. And so he goes in and he kills the Egyptian. And the next day he sees two of his own people fighting. And so he goes in and steps in the middle of the fight. And they say, Moses, what are you going to do? Kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And, and Moses realized that the people rejected him as the Savior and that his life was on the line and Pharaoh could hunt him down. And so when he was proud in himself and thought he was something glorious, Moses Moses has to run for his life and he goes to Midian and he's there for 40 years. For 40 years. And for 40 years he struggled because he thought he was this deliverer for Israel. He thought he was this called person from God. And all of a sudden he finds himself abandoned by his own people and he finds himself lost and wandering. No no doubt his spirit's probably anxious. And in chapter 3, what do we find out? God shows up in the burning bush. And Moses, who once was this proud person, becomes this anxious person. And when God tells him, look, Moses, I want you to go back And I want you to go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And do you know what Moses' question is? God, who am I? Who am I? When we get anxious, we tend to ask the question that way, don't we? God, I see what you're saying, that you care for us, but God, who am I? And you know what God says? Chapter 3 of Exodus. Moses, the question isn't, who are you? Moses, the question is, who am I? And that's where we're introduced into the great I am. This glorious God that we can cast our cares to. Because I, I think in that story, when, when Moses finally loses himself and grabs a hold of the identity of who God is and reshapes his life in that identity, and God uses him tremendously in the lives of people around him.
And it's not to say we're the experts of this. Because for all of us, as we walk this path in life, it's a struggle. But it's about trusting in the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords because he cares for you. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.